As the Apostle Paul enters Athens, the great intellectual center of the known world, he prepares to address the thinkers of that city. As an intellectual himself, trained in the great school of Tarsus, he begins to reason with them, but not from an earthly standpoint. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. The Apostle Paul approached the philosophers of Athens wielding their own tool, reason. His reasoning, however, was based not on human philosophy, but on the Word of God, far superior to the stoicism and materialism of the men of that city. Join Dr. Boyce now as he explores Paul's methods and the words he used to speak to the philosophers of that great city and direct them away from their unknown God to the one true God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's missionary journeys and missionary efforts have increasingly come to be centered on the great cities of his world. At the very beginning, when he set out with Barnabas on the first missionary journey, we're told that he visited an island, that is a whole geographic area, Cyprus. He passed through it from one end to the other, and we're told very little about any specific ministry in towns, villages, or cities. After that, when he moved over to the area that we know as Turkey, we're told of areas that he passed through. Those areas eventually gave way to cities and even to great cities. And when he passed out of Asia into Europe, we began to see that his ministry was focused almost entirely in these great cities of the ancient world, in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, and now in this chapter in Athens, which is the greatest city of them all. Or at least it was. Great New Zealand Bible teacher and commentator Blakelock says in his study of Acts at this point that Athens in the first Christian century was in the late afternoon of its glory. That is true, of course. Athens is a city that strikes a great note in our minds if we know anything of ancient history. It had a glorious golden age. Few cities, even few nations on the surface of the earth have ever equaled the splendor of Athens in the 5th century B.C., in that period which perhaps was not greater than the scope of 50 years. It had achieved a great series of military victories, and so its greatness in some respects was a response to a military threat. Herodotus writes about it in his histories. The Persians wanted to expand out of Asia, out of their great empire that stretched all the way from the borders of Europe to the Indus River. And they were about to push into Europe and did twice and were resisted on both occasions by the Greeks. The great military moments of European history in the early days are centered in those victories at Marathon where a small band of Greeks withstood the vast, vast armies of the Persians. The Persians marched into Greece with an excess of a million men. The Greeks 
had at the greatest possible muster of all the fighting men of all the Greek cities, at the most 100,000. And yet they successfully defeated the Persians at Marathon and that great land victory. And in connection with the same campaign at Salamis, where the Persian fleet was thoroughly routed by the Greek ships. In the years that followed those military victories, Athens rose to a pinnacle of great greatness. The Persians had overrun the land. They had destroyed the city thoroughly, far more than the Germans ever destroyed London during World War II. But the Greeks rose up with a will and rebuilt it. And together with the physical rebuilding, which involved not only the constructions of homes, but the glorious temples of Greece, they also rebuilt their entire culture and civilization. They built a democracy. Greece is the first example in all history, Athens, the first example in all history of a real democracy, a city, city-state run by the people with elected officials responsible to them. It was an age of great literature. The great classic plays were written during that period, an age of philosophy. It was the age of Socrates and Plato. It was an age of art. Praxiteles developed the great forms of Greek art that were imitated in Europe throughout all of the succeeding centuries down to and including the time of Michelangelo who uses exactly the same forms as he molded his great artistic creations. And yet, as I have intimated, this great period of Greek history, this golden age of Athens, passed very rapidly away. The Greeks of Athens got into a disastrous war with Sparta. It dragged on for 27 years. It was the destruction of Greek civilization and power. Athens never again regained her glory. And although she became a great intellectual center, although a reputation as a focus for Greek thought and intellectual inquiry persisted. Even the intellectual inquiry took on a lesser note, and the great, great philosophers of the past were succeeded by those who had less ability, and finally only by those who were imitators of the great men who had gone before. Now it was hundreds of years later that the Apostle Paul visited this city and preached the sermon that is recorded for us in this chapter. What do you suppose the reactions of Paul were as he came to Athens here in the first Christian century on the second missionary journey? Well, for one thing, he was a man who had been trained in one of the great university centers himself, the center that was in Asia, in Tarsus, where he had been born and grew up. He was a privileged citizen, a Roman, as well as a Jew by birth, and he had received a masterful education. He indicates it in part in this sermon, quoting from two of the Greek poets, Aratus and Cleanthes, when he said, we are his offspring. They all recognized where that had come from. And perhaps also, even in the way he gave his address, the very fact that he seemed so at home in this setting and spoke in a way which was obviously directed to the philosophers of this great university city shows that he had had a university training as well. He came from a distinguished university. He was visiting a distinguished university, and no doubt Paul had great respect for this city that was so well-known and so illustrious 
in the intellectual history of his time. It would be, if I may speak as a Harvard man, as a Yale man visiting Cambridge, or as someone from Cambridge, England, visiting Oxford with great respect for a university which is older and yet was much the same. And yet we can't escape thinking, can we, that Paul must have been greatly distressed as he entered into dialogue, that's the proper word, of course, in this setting, dialogue with these philosophers that were there dominating the intellectual scene. Luke tells us about them. He says they were Epicureans and Stoics. You may know that the Epicureans were a body of philosophers founded by a man named Epicurus, and that their chief goal in life was to attain the maximum amount of pleasure and the minimum amount of pain. We've taken that word and have spoken of Epicureans as mere hedonists, though it wasn't quite true that they were hedonists in our sense. Hedonists, as we use the word, are those who abandon themselves to anything. They weren't doing that exactly. But they were great materialists. They said, this life is all there is. You only go around once. And their philosophy was, if it feels good, do it. And if it doesn't feel good, stay away from it. Don't do anything that hurts and do everything you can that helps. And so they tried to set up a form of life based upon their materialistic philosophy in which they achieved the maximum good. You know anybody like that today? We live in an age dominated by Epicureanism. Materialism, pleasure first, do what pleases me, avoid pain. Above all, don't take on responsibility if it means anything difficult. Just enjoy yourself because this life is all there is. Imagine how Paul, steeped in the Old Testament with his knowledge of the eternal God, must have thought about that philosophy. We read here in the passage that he saw the idols and was bothered by them, but he was bothered by that as well. Aren't we bothered by that when we see it all around us? People who live for now, who haven't the faintest idea that they're eternal beings, that this life is a moment compared to eternity, and that you prepare for eternity not by indulging yourself now, not by living for material things, but by coming to terms with the eternal God. Paul must have been bothered by that, and we should be as well. And then there were the Stoics. We know that word. They were a group of philosophers founded by a man named Zeno, or two Zenos. This one came from Cyprus. They taught that life is filled with good and bad, and you can't really avoid the bad. But what you have to do is, well, our phrase for it would be grin and bear it. We have a modern expression of that. We have the poem Invictus. Many people memorize that during their high school days. I am the captain of my soul. I am the master of my fate. That's stoicism. That's the philosophy that says, well, I can't control everything that's out there and things are going to happen to me that I don't like, but what I'm going to do is stand tall, stick out my chin, and take it whatever comes. Stoics were not an ignoble group of people. Epictetus was a Stoic. Later, the Roman Marcus Aurelius was trained in Stoic philosophy, and they were great in their own way. They were willing to endure hardship, and these men actually made a mark as the Epicureans, for the most part, did not. And yet, it was a rather tragic philosophy. 
You know anybody like that? Many Stoics around us, they don't have any sense of uh, divine guidance in their life. They don't think that God is accomplishing something in them and guiding their destiny and bringing hard times as well as good, but for their own good, knowing that all things work together for good to them that love God. We're called according to his purpose. They just do the best they can, and if bad things come, well, they think you have to be strong and endure it, and that's all they know. I think Paul must have been bothered by that as well, bothered by the Stoics as well as by the Epicureans. And yet what Luke tells us is that the thing that bothered him most was the idolatry. And the reason is obvious, isn't it? The idolatry gives birth to the philosophy. It's your idea of God that forms how you think. If you have a high idea of God, if you know the true God, then you'll have a godly, uplifting, helpful, positive philosophy. But if you don't have a knowledge of the true God, if instead you have a God who is made merely in the image of men, or as was true in these days, as things much less than God ever intended men to be, then your idea of man will descend to that level and your philosophy will become as despairing as the philosophy of the Stoics and the Epicureans. So Paul looked around the city, saw the idols. The idols were everywhere. One of the ancients said that in Athens it was easier to find a god than a man, meaning that idols were just everywhere you went. And Paul looked at this and he realized that this was what was wrong with the society. I wonder if we have that kind of insight, because, of course, that's exactly what's wrong with our society, the idols, false ideas of God. Oh, we read in the papers of the problems. We read about crime, and we read about breakdown in morals, we read about uh, lack of commitment, we read about cheating in one form or another, of irresponsibility, all those things that seem so bad. We say, oh, things are certainly bad. But do we realize that the reason for that is at the spiritual level? You have an idea of God which is noble, then that is ennobling, and you do better. You have the problems, but you do better. But you lose track of God, well, then you lose track of the only thing that can lift civilization up. So what I want to say, first of all, is that when Paul got to Athens, he wasn't overawed with it. He had respect for it because it was a great intellectual center. He wasn't overawed by it. Rather, he thought as a Christian and he analyzed it as a Christian and he responded to it as a Christian. Let me say that that's what we need today. We need men and women who have proper respect for the achievements of our time, who don't despise what is done in science and other intellectual pursuits, but who are not overawed by it. And instead, as Christians, are able to analyze it, and as Christians criticize it, and as Christians respond to it favorably with the answers that are ours through the Word of God. And, of course, this is what Paul did. We have this great sermon. It begins in verse 22. He stood up at this meeting of the Areopagus, and he began by calling their attention to something that he had observed as he walked around the city. This is an introduction. You know, when you write a sermon, you generally have three or four points. You try to have an introduction. You want a good conclusion. Here's a classic kind of sermon. It's a great introduction. Paul said to them, you know, I have 
been walking around your city. I'm a newcomer, and I have been walking around observing things. And as I have been observing things, I have noticed these many, many statues to the gods, these many idols. And I perceive from this, since there are so many of them, that you are very religious people. That is, you have a heart for religion. You have a yearning after that which is eternal. But he said, I did notice one thing. As I moved around the city, I saw an altar which, to my mind, sums up where you are at in your spiritual or religious quest. It's an altar that bore the inscription to the unknown or to an unknown God. Nobody has found that altar, but there's ample references to similar things in Athens. A number of the ancients write about this, that they saw altars or statues that bore an inscription like this or similar to it. So apparently it wasn't an unusual thing. Paul said, you know, I think as I look at this city that this describes where you are at spiritually. You are seeking, perhaps. You are aware that you need a religious dimension in your life, but the one you're seeking after is unknown. And that's the one I want to proclaim to you. Paul does not say at this point, though you can tell that he is thinking of it from the way the rest of the sermon goes, the kind of things that he spells out later so forcefully in Romans 1. Romans 1 is the great chapter on the unknown God. And there he explains why it is that this God is unknown. He points out that it's not God's fault. God has made himself known and he's done it in a variety of ways. He has certainly done it in creation which is what Paul is going to talk about here in a moment. Certainly he has done it in Scripture, and above all, he has done it in Jesus Christ. The reason God is unknown is that we don't want to know him. Paul, if he were going to expound this point, would have spoken out about the willful ignorance of the Athenians. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, passing over that point, you are ignorant of this God, and the solution is in the Christian proclamation. So he said, the one that you are ignorant of, I now am going to proclaim to you. Sometimes people ask me questions about how you deal with people who have questions about this and that, particularly when they seem so blind to Christian truth. Those are always difficult questions for me because I really don't know. Sometimes as you talk with people, the Lord gives you an answer that seems to speak directly to their heart. And certainly if they have intellectual problems, we want to give intellectual answers. Paul said on one occasion to be ready always to give an answer to the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. We want to be able to do that. But generally, I, I say the problem is not basically in the explanation. We should give explanation, and if there are problems, we should answer them. But basically, the problem is in this rebellion of the human heart. And Paul's solution, indeed the solution of Christian preaching generally in the New Testament and elsewhere, is in proclamation. It's making God known, saying who God is. You say, well, why does that work? Why should we do that? If people have problems, don't they find that impossible? Well, yes, intellectually they may. But what happens is that in the proclamation which God has sent us to do, God himself is pleased to work. God takes the truth by the power of his Holy Spirit. He carries it home. To the hearts, and that is what Paul was trying to do here. Now, if you make outlines of sermons, this is a good sermon to make an outline of. There's the introduction, and now here's point one. God is the creator of all things. 
what Paul says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by hands. This is the point that he develops so carefully in Romans 1, as I indicated a moment ago. God has not left himself without a witness. It is true that not all races have the scriptures. In the Old Testament, God gave the scriptures only to the Jews. But all races, all people, all times, and in all places have the witness of God in creation. The witness of God in the heavens, on the wonders of the heavens, the witness of God on earth and the wonders of the earth. God, he said, is not a God who dwells in temples made with hands. Above all, he is not a God of idols made by human hands. God is the God, the creator, God of heavens and the earth. And secondly, Paul points out that God is the sustainer of all things. Notice verse 25, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. God is the one who keeps us living. God is the one who sustains moment by moment the creation that he has made. There's an interesting debate in some spheres of theology as to whether the creation that God has made was something that God did once and for all and then let it go but sustains it somehow, or whether the creation that we see about us is the result of what we might call a moment-by-moment creating act of God. Did God just create it and then let it go and guide it, or is he constantly creating it in the sense that if God stopped creating it for even a single instant, everything we know would disappear? I don't know the answer to that. And for that, you have to go to the theological textbooks and figure it out if you're able. I do know that in the first chapter of Colossians, Paul refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who holds all things together. And the implication there is that if the Lord Jesus Christ, by his power, was not holding all things together, all things would fly apart. At any rate, this is the God Paul is proclaiming, a God who not only created all things, but sustains all things. The very fact that we are here, that the world is here, that we are alive, that we can think is the result of the power and sustaining activity of this God. That's the God, you see, that he's come to proclaim to these intellectual but quite ignorant Athenians. Then, in the third place, He says that God not only sustains the universe, but he also guides the affairs of man. Paul speaks of it here in terms of nations. Verse 26, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. We would refer to this in theology as the eternal counsels of God or the hidden counsels of God. We use the word hidden because we mean by that that God has not revealed these things to us in Scripture. We don't know the future. We don't know what God has determined to do with the nations. But nevertheless, God has determined to do it. God is active, and what God determines comes to pass. Paul says, this is the God with whom you have to deal. Not a weak God, not a God that you entreat and get him to change his mind, but a God who has already determined that you Greeks, for example, should be Greeks, and you Athenians should be Athenians. And you Americans should be Americans and whoever else it may be. God has determined all these things in advance. 
But now he says, and this is his fourth point, it follows from this, that if God has revealed himself in creation and if God sustains creation, including us in our life, if God has determined the bounds of our habitations and our future and our destiny, it follows from this that we should seek him out and try and find him. That is the purpose of the general revelation. God has revealed himself in creation in order that we might find him. We might seek him out. Paul uses an interesting word here, and it is a powerful and very suggestive term. It's translated, perhaps reach out for him and find him, in verse 27, or feel after him, as one of the older versions says. Interesting thing about that is that that is the very word that is used in Homer for the groping of the Cyclops after he had been blinded by Odysseus. Odysseus blinded him. He had one eye. You know the story. You know how he did it. And then Odysseus wanted to sneak out of the cave. And we're told that the Cyclops was groping around, feeling after Odysseus that he might find him and kill him. Now, that's the word that Paul uses here. It's as if he's saying that in our sin we're blind, as blind as the blinded one-eyed Cyclops. Nevertheless, you see... Creation is there. We can feel the creation, even if we can't see the God who made it, and that alone is sufficient to impel us to seek God out. And yet, what is the conclusion? The conclusion is that we have not done that. We haven't sought after the true God. Instead, we've made idols. We've made things that we can handle, things that we can manage, things that we can see. We haven't sought after the God who has created all things and sustains all things and has a destiny for us and all other men and women. You see, with the flow of the sermon along those lines, why Paul now calls for repentance. He hasn't spoken of the gross immorality of the Athenians, though he certainly could have done that. He hasn't spoken of the intellectual arrogance of the philosophers, though he could have articulated that as well. But he has spoken in general terms of their failure to seek after the true God. And now he says, God calls on all men everywhere to repent. Notice how he says it. Verse 29, quoting their own poets who had at least this insight, therefore, since we are God's offspring, you know, Cleanthes has said that, and our eight is too, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, Now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. See, we have that message for our generation, and that's the word of God for us, if we ourselves have not done it. Christianity doesn't begin by saying you're a good fellow. It doesn't begin by saying everything's going to be nice if you just get in touch with God. Christianity begins by saying you have failed to seek after the true God. You have gone your own way. You are willfully ignorant of spiritual things, and God commands that you repent of that ignorance. Then, of course, having repented of it, he holds out the gospel, speaking of Jesus Christ. They interrupted Paul at this point. He got to speak of the resurrection, and they didn't believe in resurrections. That's one point at which the Epicureans And the Stoics came together. The Greeks thought that there was 
spirit, which was good, and matter that was bad. And certainly in the life to come, you didn't want matter. And therefore, you didn't want a resurrection. As a matter of fact, you couldn't even have a resurrection, according to their philosophy. But nevertheless, Paul got in certain inducements to call them to the repentance that he was urging upon them. You look at these verses, you see what he's saying. He's saying, God, first of all, has been patient, and that should encourage you. I guess if he were preaching that to us, he would say, God has not destroyed America yet for all its sin. God's been patient. He hasn't destroyed you yet because of your sin. He's patient with you. He has been overlooking your ignorance. He has been bearing with it. Let the patience be an inducement to repent. Secondly, he says, God commands you to repent. And there's an inducement. God is the true God. If he's the creator of all things, if he guides your destiny and he tells you to do something, well, you better do it. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing is that he speaks of the day of judgment, which means that there is going to be a day of reckoning. He says, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to all men by raising him, that is Jesus, from the dead. I don't know whether when Paul finished this address to the Areopagus, whether he was disheartened or discouraged or not. Certainly when he had been in the other cities and administered for a time when he left, he left behind a church. And generally when he could, he left somebody to work with it and to continue the teaching he'd begun. That didn't happen here at Athens. A number of commentators have felt that he taught wrongly. William Ramsey, whom I mentioned a number of times, said he made a mistake here. He began to speak like a philosopher and as a result of that, there wasn't the results that he had hoped for, and he certainly changed his approach later when he got to Corinth. There's some reason for believing that, because just a few verses further on in chapter 18, verse 5, in an almost uncharacteristic Lucan way, Luke, the author of the book, says, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, they found Paul devoting himself exclusively to preaching. And maybe that is a way of saying that Paul said this kind of academic address to the philosophers is not the way to go. There's something to that. When he wrote to the Corinthians later, he did say, I determined among you not to know anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And yet it perhaps is also unfair. Early on, we're told that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. In other words, he did the same thing there that he'd done in the other cities. And certainly when it says he reasoned with them, it means he reasoned from the scriptures. He was teaching the Bible. And here was a special situation, and he certainly handled it well. He spoke directly to the needs of the people in terms they could understand. And what he taught was biblical theology. They say, I don't know whether it's proper to criticize the Apostle Paul at that point. At any rate, I think I'm not going to criticize him, because who am I to criticize the Apostle Paul? But if you say, was he discouraged? He may have been. Here was this great city, this great intellectual center, and when he had finished, he'd spent some time there. When he finished, he didn't have much to show for it. And yet he had something, didn't he? You read... At the end, a few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, that is one of the leaders, one of the philosophers there in the ruling court. Also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. That would mean at least two, so there were at least four. 
And maybe there were a few more. Later, there was a church here. It actually did get established, although it doesn't seem to have been established in Paul's day. That last paragraph indicates the reactions that people have to the gospel. It says some sneered, and some sneer today. It says some postponed a decision. They said, we'll hear you again on this subject. But it also says that some believed. Whether Paul was discouraged or not, he had a hard task in Athens. It's very hard to speak to intellectuals. Very hard to speak to people who are basking in the glory of a former age. Whether that's an intellectual glory, whether that's a religious glory, my grandfather was a bishop in the church or some such thing. It's very hard to speak to such people. And it's hard for us. And yet Paul did it, and we're to do it too. And if our results are no greater than his, we shouldn't be profoundly disheartened by that because we should know that God always allows his word to bear fruit in one form or another. When we speak to our age with all its arrogance and pride, there will be some who sneer, and they do sneer when we witness. There will be some who postpone the decision. You think they're so close that they would just make a commitment, but they say, no, I don't know quite enough. I want to talk to you about it again, and the moment passes by. That's discouraging. But there are also some who will believe. They are the lost sheep. They are the sheep that Jesus is calling into his fold. And it is our privilege as under-shepherds of the great shepherd to go and in his name call them to faith in Christ. Let us pray. Father, bless this study to our hearts. We are not the intellectual giant, most of us, that Paul was. And we would have a very hard time speaking in a great intellectual way in a gathering such as this. But we're called to proclaim the truth of your word and to do it to all who will listen and to do it without regard for the results. Father, grant, we pray, not that we might be successful because we don't even know how to measure that, or if we do, we measure it in the world's way. But grant instead, our Father, that we might be found faithful and use the word, we pray, to bring men and women to Christ. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening to this message from the Bible Study Hour, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of believers that hold to the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. To learn more about the Alliance, select the appropriate link at thebiblestudyhour.org. Write to us at 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Your financial support makes our broadcasting, publishing, online, and event ministries possible. Please consider making a gift at our websites by phone at 1-800-488-1888 or by mail. Canadian listeners can reach us at P.O. Box 24097, RPO Josephine, North Bay, Ontario, P1B0C7. Thank you for your prayers and gifts and for listening to the Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically. Biblically.